Great, here, great uh, prayer here from Kierkegaard. God of compassion, we know that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from thee, but thou hast not sent us into the world empty-handed. Grant that our hand might not be closed, our heart not hardened, but add thou thyself the blessing so that our gift might come from on high, from thee, good and perfect, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, well today... Uh, you know, last week we got into the text a little bit. You should have that. I think the plan is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but the plan is to give you each week, if it's going to be specifically on the text, um, kind of an updated version. So add this. You know, I keep, I keep it in this little green, these green strings here. You might have a three-ring binder or something. Pop them in there. But this is the next section then from Galatians. Uh, in particular, this is where Paul explains his apostolic ministry, and we'll get to that in just a second. But last week... Pastor Bruzek started just with the greeting from Paul and the greeting from James. And you remember there was a distinction in those greetings. The, greetings from Saint, the greeting from St. Paul in Galatians was this long, extravagant greeting. And the greeting then from James uh, was very brief. It's kind of like, hey, here we go, let's get to work. But once we've received the greeting, it might be helpful to go back just for a few minutes um, and actually figure out who these two folks are, who St. Paul is and who James is, Okay. So now that we've been formally introduced, as you see there on your, on your outline, um, let's get to know each other just a bit. If you look at your sheet with Galatians on it, with this text from Galatians, you'll see uh, an italicized text underneath each verse. That's a translation from J. Lewis Martin. It's a commentary that both of us have kind of looked at uh, regarding the book of Galatians. It's almost a literal translation, but very eloquent. So let me just read that to you. You might even close your eyes and just listen, listen to the section from Galatians. Um, I can remember taking Galatians at the seminary, and my father-in-law taught it. And I remember at the very beginning, he did one thing. The very first day, he read every chapter of Galatians to us. Took one hour and read it to us. And then we took the entire class, and at the very end, he took one hour, and he read the book of Galatians to us again. And it's fascinating to try to figure out what you hear that's different. What did you hear at the beginning? What do you hear at the end? And... Uh, as, as Patrick Henry Reardon said yesterday at the Saturday seminar, it is all about hearing. It's all about listening. So just listen to these verses from St. Paul uh, before we delve into exactly who Paul was. For I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel preached by me. I did not receive it from another human being, nor was I taught it. It came to me by God's apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. I can give you the grounds for that assertion by tracing God's way with me. You have already heard some things about my past, the course and nature of my life when I lived in the religion of Judaism. For You know that for some time I persecuted the church of God to an extreme degree. I even had it as my goal to destroy it entirely. And my doing that sprang from that fact, that in regard to matters of the Jewish religion, I outstripped many of my fellows being far more zealous than they for the traditions handed down from my forefathers. But all of that came to an end. God had in fact singled me out even before I was born and had called me in his grace. So when it pleased him apocalyptically to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I immediately kept to myself not asking advice from anyone. Okay, so there you have at least according to Paul in Galatians, a brief uh, kind of addition of his conversion. So look then at your outline. 
Let's begin where St. Paul begins. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. But a couple things pop out right from the beginning in the text that I just read to you from Galatians chapter 1, specifically 13 to 14. He talks about his former life. And two things you should know. One is uh, the use of that word for persecuted. In the Greek, it's actually in the imperfect text. It, the, other, the, other, uh, the other way it could be as an aorist, but it's not. It's in the imperfect, which means it's an action he had done in the past and never intended to stop in the future. It's activity in the past that he never intended to stop in the future. So he says, I persecuted the church in the imperfect, meaning I did it for years and years and years, and my intention was never to stop. And he goes on to say, I violently tried to destroy it, or as the Greek says, exterminate it, pillage it, annihilate it. And again, that's in the imperfect, meaning this man, Saul, had done it in the past and never attempted to stop in the future. So look then at that section there from Acts chapter 9. This is the actual conversion story of Saul, from Saul to Paul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that, of course, is what they call Christians, Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In just two verses, you have an exact representation of how Paul treated the Church of Christ. That if any might be found belonging to the way, men or women, I might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Or as he says in Galatians, I persecuted the Church and violently tried to destroy it, meaning I had done it for years and years and years, and I never intend to stop. But... You notice there's a dramatic shift in that text I read you from from Martin. But, but, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And the Greek word there for reveal is the same word that you know as apocalypse or apocalyptic, meaning it's a cosmic event. And you'll see this all over the book of Galatians. Paul is... (laughs) You know, it's fascinating to me when people say, I I came to know Jesus or I was baptized, or the way people speak of baptism in the Eucharist. For most folks, what happens in the water here is just a normal thing. Maybe not for all of you, but for most folks. Sprinkle some water on a kid, you speak the name, and isn't this great? We did what our kids have always done. We brought them all to baptism, and now we've got another. But the way Paul speaks about being brought to the faith or being transformed from Saul to Paul is in terms of the cosmic. Meaning, the Lord was in heaven, and he saw that I was walking down the wrong way, and he invaded this creation. He invaded this creation, and he found me persecuting the church of Christ, and what did he do? He revealed to me the way. It pleased him apocalyptically, to reveal his son to me. And you'll see this later on in Galatians chapter 3 when it says Jesus Christ broke on the scene. The the words there are very similar. He invaded this creation. He invaded it. And you know that as then the incarnation. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But he was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is an apocalyptic event. And the to me there, as you read in your English text, actually in the Greek says he was pleased to reveal his son in me, which you know is very, very, very sacramental. Right? At the altar, the Lord just doesn't reveal himself to you. He reveals himself in you. Open wide, the body of Christ. Boom. He invades your flesh. The blood of Christ. He invades your flesh. The altar is an apocalyptic event. Same thing happens at baptism. He invades your forehead. He invades your ear. So it, was, it pleased him to reveal his son in me. And the way he reveals his son in people, of course, as you know, beginning with the Annunciation, uh, is in the ear. So look at then the second bit there from Acts chapter 9. Now as he, this is St. Paul, Saul, went away, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? which is a fascinating play on words there. Because you remember, Saul says, it says of Saul in Acts chapter 9 at the very beginning, he's been persecuting the church, and then when the Lord speaks to him, he says, why have you been persecuting me? Which means Jesus and the church are one and the same. If you persecute the church, you're actually persecuting Jesus. And vice versa. When they nail Jesus to the cross, you're actually nailing the church to the cross. Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... Reminiscent of Jesus in the tomb. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So you have Saul who is utterly trying to destroy the church with no intention of ever stopping. And Jesus reveals himself in St. Paul via his word. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He sends him off for three days in the darkness. And at the end of those three days he makes him an apostle. Okay? Don't worry, we're getting to the good stuff in just a minute. <laughs> I promise. At the end of this, as I say next, gas up the plane. <laughs> uh, I leave for St. Andrews on Wednesday, and it's a good thing I won't be here next weekend. Just think about that as we move to the next section. <laughs> just trying to figure out who James is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's good you're up next weekend. Uh, <laughs> From Saul to Paul then, right around 36 AD, you remember then that in the ancient world, um, if you had the name, you also had the entire person, which is why at baptism, you baptize in the name. Or as Solomon says, Lord, how will we know that you're going to be in this temple? And he says, I will put my name there, which means if the name is there, the person is there. That's how it works in the ancient world. So it's very important. You can't just say, oh, this is great. He was named Saul, and now he's named Paul, and wow, we can name our churches St. Paul instead of St. Saul. The name change actually means a ton. 
from Saul to Paul with the name you have the person. Or as Kittle says, the name is an indispensable part of the personality. One might say that a man is constituted by body, soul, and name. And so with the new person, or as St. Paul says later in Galatians, what matters most, this is how he ends the epistle to Galatians, what matters most is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. What matters most is new creation. A new person, a new creation, required a new name, and so we have St. Paul. Okay? This is not as fun as last week. Just do, I mean, this is, this is like, this is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this kind of geographical, where did he go? What's his name? That's just, yeah, it will get better, I promise. We probably want to turn the recording off in just a minute. Um, any questions, though, on St. Paul, Saul to Paul? Any questions? Oh, well, without further ado, let's see if we can figure out who St. James is. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James 1, verse 1. We have very, very, very few references, however, uh, to James' family ties. Who is he? Who are his parents? Where does he belong? Where does he come from? Uh, But one that always jumps out is in Galatians chapter 1, which Pastor Bruzek, I'm sure, will get to next week. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Easy enough. Mary and Joseph had other children, right? Jesus, James, Joseph, as you know, Simon or Simeon, and also then St. Jude, who wrote the epistle at the very end of the scriptures. And that common understanding, I would bet, I don't, you know, I don't want to take a show of hands because I'll see just what I'm up against. Uh, but I would guess that most folks would say, yeah, that's right, Mary and Jesus had other children, James is one of their children, along with Joseph, Simeon, Jude, and of course, Jesus the Christ. And verses to support that are those, or such as those, listed below. Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Or Matthew 1.24, And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And Luke chapter 2, She gave birth to her firstborn son, which implies, of course, that she has other children and wrapped him in swaddling claws and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Or then, probably the most cited, Mark chapter 3. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family, this is Jesus' family, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my, mothers and my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And James, of course, then, James, who writes the epistle, uh, is often included in that crowd. He would have been there to see that. Uh, When Jesus says, where are my mother and brothers, James is included in the list of brothers. 
But I would propose to you that if you take a better look at the text or a deeper look at the text, you might find something drastically different. And, and I know at the end of this, so please, please, please don't ask, but I know someone is thinking, why does this matter? Especially when you get to the end, someone's going to say, why does this matter? Which is always the question that's asked when you realize that you've been taught something that maybe has not been correct for the past 30 years of your life. You just say, well, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Um, it does matter for a multitude of reasons. But first and foremost, it matters because, especially in, especially in, this, uh, in this Bible study, Galatians and James, especially when we get to James, who you will begin to read and say, this cannot be Lutheran. It's not, it's Jesus. As you begin to read the book of James, it's going to be very, very important that you read the text for what it is. You take a deeper look and you say, I know it says this at face value, but what is he really saying here? What does he mean? And it's going to be important for us to say, here are very important key words. Make sure you tend these words. For instance, the imperfect when it says, he persecuted and tried to destroy the church. That makes the epistle to the Galatians what it is. It'll be very important to tend these specific words, to look deeply at the text. And so why does this matter? This is just an exercise of looking deeply at the text. Okay? So, at the end of this, we're going to try to figure out who James is. It may not be what you always thought, but that's okay. Because we're taking a deep look at the text. So then, let's just go one by one through each of these. This will be fun. That was a joke. You guys are like, oh, this is a rough crowd. I don't know what it is. I mean, was it, I mean, I know it's a holiday weekend, but come on, show me a little love. I'm heading out of town. I... Man. Don't worry, I'm not leaving you. This is, this is just, I'm just giving him Jesus. <laughs> there will be no mess at all. And if there is, his extension is 421. Uh, yes, you probably should. I'll pause and you laugh. Yeah, exactly. All right, so Matthew chapter 1, a commonly used text. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together which implies, of course, as you read it, some sort of sexual connection. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. However, the Greek word for come together actually means to live in the same home, and specifically the actual ceremony of leading the bride to the home. So when I got married... Actually, I'm not going to talk about my wife. Um, Anyways, moving on... (laughs) It's the actual ceremony of leading the bride to the home, which implies there's no sexual connotation to that, at least in the Greek. It means carrying her across the threshold to the door. It means, you remember, weddings were a big thing. This is why in the scriptures, well, frankly, eating in the scriptures is a big thing. Table fellowship is a big thing. But when you have eating and drinking at a wedding, then you know you've got a very big thing. To anyone who says that the Lord doesn't like parties has not read John chapter 2. If I was preaching that text, uh, the theme would be Jesus loves a good party. In fact, he keeps the party going by making more wine. And in fact, it's better wine than what they started with. So when there's a party and when there's a wedding, you know something big is going on. And for a wedding, it's not like we do weddings today. People say, oh, pastor, can you have us out in about 28 minutes because our reception place is 35 minutes away and we want to be there for drinks at 6 To which I say, yeah, sure, okay, just make sure you contribute to the pastor's discretionary fund. Uh, Kidding. 
That's a joke. You were supposed to laugh there. Come on. No, I say, sure. Well, I mean, no one wants a long wedding. We, however, and, and well, I shouldn't say no one. Some people do. We said, let's have a full service, and we'll have the wedding dropped in. Because that's at least reminiscent of the weddings in the New Testament. It's a big deal. One aspect of that is walking your bride back to the house. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, which does then have the connotation of some sort of sexual knowing. However, part of the reason why I made a point of talking about the imperfect with Galatians is because that same word for no is in the imperfect, which means he didn't know her before she had a child, and very important, had no intention of knowing her afterwards. If that had been in a different tense, if it had been an aorist instead of an imperfect, you could make the case that he didn't know her before she gave birth to Jesus and then knew her afterwards. But because it's in the imperfect, just as we said St. Paul persecuted the church beforehand and had no intention of stopping afterwards, you can also say he didn't know her beforehand and had no intention of knowing her afterwards. Okay? Yes, good, okay. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, good point. The point is, in one case, uh, with St. Paul, he didn't intend to stop, and with Joseph, he didn't intend to start, right? With St. Paul, he never intended to stop the persecution, and with Joseph, he never intended to actually start knowing his wife, right? Which is, yeah, that's very true. It appears to be a contradiction. One is in the positive, and the other is in the negative. The whole verb there is the not knowingness. He did not know her, the not knowing is in the imperfect, which means he didn't for a long time before, and there was no intention of starting in the future, or no intention of stopping the not knowingness. Okay? He didn't know her, and he had no intention of stopping that not knowing. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. The until is all wrapped up in the not knowing. The until is all wrapped up in the not knowing. The whole part there is in the imperfect. But the key word, of course, is the knowing, because that's what everybody asks about. Who had a question back here? It's, the same, it's, the same point. it's all wrapped up in, in the word gnosko, which is to know or to not know, not know until, and the entire verb then, the not knowing until, is actually in the imperfect. But in the prior, in the prior example, yeah. Right. Something else happened. This is, he had this intention, and he had this continuing intention, but until she had given birth to a son. So at that point in time, that's the end of his intention. No, because the until is wrapped up in the verb to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no preposition. It's all wrapped up in the verb to know. 
here's, here's the point. The until, actually, you can just drop the until out. That actually doesn't matter in the Greek. What it says is, he knew her not, essentially, even after she had given birth to a son. That's what it implies with the imperfect. I realize in the English you can read the until, but that's actually not, that's not the key in the Greek. Okay, well, you, well, that's why I've given you more examples. So just wait. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, I am too, so start. Give me a question. Are you saying that Joseph had no intention of consummating Well, that would be dependent on me. Um, I would say the Lord in the scriptures makes it fairly clear that Joseph has no intention of consummating the marriage, which is part of the reason why you know, I mean, historically, people would say Mary was quite young. Everybody knows, you know, the Virgin Mary. She's a maiden, fair maiden. But uh, tradition has always said that Joseph was actually quite a bit older than Mary, okay? And as Pastor Nelson said, well, of course, if he didn't know her, that's why he died so young. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, well, that's probably what killed him. I mean, I'm pinning that on Pastor Nelson because he's the one that said it. He said, well... He said, of course he didn't know her, and that's why he died so quickly. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm trying to let the text say that. That would be a great way of putting it. The Lord stops Paul, and the Lord stops Joseph. Right. I'm not agreeing. I'm simply tracing the argument. <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking back at your notes and wondering why I didn't get the first week. <laughs> Former member, you demand more of me than Jesus does. I could say that. Former vicar, they don't preach the law here. Current vicar, he can still fail. But instead, it's a good thing I'm getting on a plane. All right, here we go. Just remember, four, two, one. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7 there. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And there you see, uh, uh, as McHugh says, who probably is the leading, uh, not even, he's not a Marian scholar at all. He's the leading New Testament scholar, um, at least in Britain. He's now deceased, but at least of, of, recent, of recent years. To a Jew familiar with the Old Testament... The idea conveyed by the term firstborn would not be the birth of other children or sons afterwards, but the special consecration of this one. Firstborn does not necessarily suggest laterborn. And you see that in the Hebrew, where the Hebrew is translated into the Greek, um, in the Septuagint. When that same word for firstborn is used, it in fact never implies other children. It always implies a specific consecration of this child. So this is a very, very, very important child uh, set aside for the Lord's doing, that doesn't mean, however, that the intention is that they have more children. Okay? Yes? In fact, yeah, the, the place it appears first is um, in the, uh, when the Egyptians, you know, when, they, when, uh, when Pharaoh says, to, or, or when, uh, when the angel of death passes over and the firstborn are saved, the word there is specifically for the consecration of the first child. You could have a firstborn, 
and they could never have had children afterward. It's specifically a reference to the oldest and most times only child in the Hebrew when it comes to the Greek. Okay? All right. I'm having fun. Also, and this is just a, this is just a, a you know, question mark. This is not an assertion. But if it's true that Mary had other children, then why at the cross is she by herself and Jesus says from the cross, woman, behold your son, and to St. John, behold your mother. Okay, so why does he say that? Again, that's not an assertion. That's just a question mark. It's fascinating that the, if you were here for the Patrick Henry Reardon thing yesterday, you remember that especially at the end of the Gospel of John, he makes very, uh, very direct detail, a detailed analysis of what happens because he's there to see it. I mean, St. John is one of, the, he's the, he's one, he's one of the few eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, and he makes the point of saying, we're there all by ourselves, and, sh- and Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And to St. John, behold your mother. Okay, so I just pose the question. And then in the other one, of course, in the longer one from, chapter, from Mark, chapter 3, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called again, called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he, of course, answers, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The his people... I'm sorry, his family, forgive me, is literally his people. And I think it's St. Jerome who says it implies a huge crowd. So either Mary had 17 children or it refers to the crowd outside waiting for Jesus. His family in the Greek is literally not his family, but his people. And Adelphoi, who are my brothers, can mean anything from blood brothers to those of a common nationality to blood relatives to good friends. For example, in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham said to Lot, his nephew, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are brothers. And when that's translated to the Greek, the word used is Adelphoi. Okay? Well, it could mean brothers. It could also mean very close friends. It could also mean relatives. Okay? Everyone tracking? You may not agree, but are you tracking? Okay, good. I'll read you this, this short quote here uh, from Theodoret on Galatians 1.19. He was called the brother of the Lord, but was not so by nature. He was thought by others to be the Lord's brother, both because their mothers had the same names, and we'll get to that, and because the family shared one house. And he was so called even by believers, both because of the extreme virtue that he possessed, you remember James was called James the Just, and because of the kinship meaning they were relatives. For the sacred story of the Gospels tells us that the Blessed Virgin had no other son, for seeing her by the cross, the Lord gave her to the most divine John, but he would not have committed her to another if the Blessed James, a man possessed of extreme virtue, had been her son. Meaning, if James, who we call the just, the Bishop of Jerusalem, had been Mary's son, Jesus from the cross wouldn't have said, John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. And just looking at the stars then, if you look at that icon there, most early Christian iconography of Mary, specifically of the Theotokos, of Mary bearing Jesus, 
most, and not all, but most, have three stars someplace on Mary's body. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I was going to pay 10 cents a copy to make you all color copies, but uh, I, I thought you might not agree, so I figured I wouldn't print off color copies. So, uh, Anyways, look at the black and white. You, three, you see a star on her right shoulder, her head, and her left shoulder. And this has always been understood as the mark of the virginity of Mary before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Okay? This is how they marked it. This was the early Christian. Remember, they didn't always write things out. People couldn't always read things, so they had icons. And this is the, one of the ways in which they taught that Mary was virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. And again, you can believe that or not believe that that's okay. What I'm showing you is even since the time of Jesus, this has been kind of, the, this is, not kind of, this has been the common understanding of the relationship between Mary and her son. If you look at the next page then, just so no one can say Gainig's a heretic, Lutheran Confessions and Confessors. This is straight out of the small called articles, which honestly every pastor takes, I mean I vow my life uh, at the altar when I went face down that I I would confess this and I would uphold this throughout my ministry. And all of you, Uh, if you're kind of true blue Lutherans, say, yes, we will believe this as well. So the small cold articles. The Son became man in this manner. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit without cooperation of man and was born of the pure, holy, and always virgin Mary. Or as the Latin says, et ex Maria pura sancta semper virgine. Semper, as you know, from the Marines. You know, what what does it say? Semper, yeah, semper, semper fide or semper fidelis always faithful, as it says here, out of the pure, holy Mary, always virgin. Straight out of the confessions. Yeah. Uh, because it was, they left it actually in the Latin, in the text that I had. I just translated it for you. But it's in there, in the parentheses, in part because people tried to drop it out later saying this isn't actually true. That's to kind of mark it off and say, this is from the original Latin, of the confessions, it's not in parentheses. Yeah? Uh, it, it would be, a, it would be it, it's a name and not a condition. Um, in some respects, yeah, um, but at the same time, who you are and what you do or what the Lord has called you to do cannot be separated. This is like talking about the person and work of Jesus. You say those are one and the same. Same thing with Mary. Her person, Mary, and her work to be the virgin mother of the Lord are one and the same. So her title is also, in a sense, her name. Okay? And then just from Luther, let me run you through a couple of these. And I'll admit, a couple of these are early, but you get all the way down here and you've got 1537 and 1538. That's, you know, that's getting to be pretty late Luther. And you'll see the clarity of thought as you move on. A new lie about me, he says, is being circulated. I am supposed to have preached and written that Mary, the mother of God, was not a virgin either before or after the birth of Christ. Perception is not real. This is like when someone came into my office after September 14th and said, you told us to worship the Virgin Mary. And I said, a lie is circulating about me. I am supposed to have preached that Mary... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Perception is not real, especially when you take something out of a sermon... 
Uh, but Mary, or, or Luther says, a lie is circulating about me. I'm supposed to have said that Mary wasn't a virgin before or after the birth of Christ. Or he goes on to say, Scripture does not quibble or speak about the virginity of Mary after the birth of Christ, a matter about which the hypocrites are greatly concerned, as if it were something of the utmost importance on which our whole salvation depended. Let me make this very clear. Mary's perpetual virginity is not what your salvation depends upon. Which is why I said, someone's going to ask me, why does this matter? And what you want me to say is, uh, if you're not being honest, you want me to say, because your salvation depends on it. I will not say that, and I have not said that. Uh, What I will say is, it's about reading the text for what the text says. So Luther goes on then, actually we should be satisfied simply to hold that she remained a virgin after the birth of Christ, because scripture does not state or indicate that she later lost her virginity. Or again from 1523, when Matthew 125 says that Joseph did not know Mary carnally until she had brought forth her son, it does not follow that he knew her subsequently. On the contrary, it means that he never did know her. Or then, a bit later, Christ our Savior was the real and natural fruit of Mary's virgin womb. This was without the cooperation of a man, and she remained a virgin after that. This is a bit like the difference between Bruzek and myself. I speak like the early Luther. He speaks like the late Luther. One is clear, one is not. That's why I get in a lot of trouble. Um, but, you know, after 14 years in the ministry, what's that? <laughs> I was trying to give you a little credit there. This is like, I spent all last week trying to bail you out. <laughs> the late Luther speaks very clearly and concisely. There's no messing around. I mean, right now, I'm tr- here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to dodge like a banshee right now because I know you're all thinking this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm trying to give you every bit of data. Luther, at the end of his life, said, this is just it. I don't care what people say about me. This is just it. She's not a virgin. Or she is a virgin. She did not have other children. (laughs) May May the queen of angels have mercy on my soul. Freudian slip. (laughs) You can tell where, you know, five years ago what I used to think. All of you think I grew up like this. You have no idea. But when you start reading the text, it's hard to deny. And finally then, Christ was the only son of Mary, and the Virgin Mary bore no children besides him. I am inclined to agree with those who declare that brothers really means cousins here, for Holy Writ and the Jews always call cousins brothers. And the editor then, Yaroslav Pelikan, and I'll just say it for you, yes, he did become Eastern Orthodox, but he wrote this when he was a Lutheran. Luther does not even consider the possibility that Mary might have had other children than Jesus. This is consistent with his lifelong acceptance of the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And just if you want some more dogmatic text, I give you Francis Pieper, who, if you would expect, if you know anything about dogmatics, if you would expect one guy to not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, it would be Francis Pieper. Okay? This is like out of nowhere this comes. But here's what he says. At this point, we may discuss also the question concerning the Semper Virgo, the always virgin. That is, the question of whether Mary, after she had become the mother of the Savior of the world, through the miraculous working of the Holy Ghost, became the mother of other children in her marriage with Joseph. The early Christian church, as did also Luther and the other Lutheran teachers, answered the question in the negative. Luther thus writes, Helvidius, who was in about 382, was the first guy to say, Mary had other children. So 
from the time of Jesus all the way to 382, that's 350 years, no one even brought it up. Helvidius, a teacher of the 4th century whose writings were condemned by Jerome, that fool, was also willing to credit Mary with more sons after Christ's birth because of the words of the evangelist, and Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. This had to be understood, as he thought, as though she had more sons after the firstborn son. How stupid he was. He received a fitting answer from Jerome. Jerome, of course, says, that's not the way it works, and gives all the data I've just given you, plus, I mean, there's more than this. I wanted to give you the the easiest, simplest stuff to see and understand. Pieper then says, if the Christology, that's the study of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, if the Christology of a theologian is orthodox in all other respects, he is not to be regarded as a heretic for holding that Mary bore other children in a natural manner after she had given birth to the Son of God. And that is, in a sense, that's a backhanded, that's a backhanded punch. What he's saying is, but if you're not orthodox or if you've got other things screwed up, let's just add this one to the mix and call you a heretic. Okay? Meaning, we're going to let this one slide. In fact, he says in one other place, I should have put this out, if someone believes that Mary had other children, I suppose we will let them come to the Holy Supper. Okay? Now, you know, it, it is, it is kind of humorous, but at the same time, it shows you how important getting the scriptures right was for Luther, for Lutherans, for the Confessions, and for, frankly, dogmatic theologians throughout the ages. So if anything else, just take this as, we've got to get the scriptures right. We've got to get the scriptures right. And if you read James and Galatians this way, with critical eyes, and say, what is he really saying? What do these words mean? I promise you, you may understand at the end of this what we're trying to get at with the catechumenate, with new members, with incorporation and participation, what it means to live like a Christian. So will the real James please stand up? Here is, um, at least according to most, most theologians, even McHugh, who, you know, um, he was actually the doctoral father for my father-in-law, so that's how I got a hold of his book. Um, McHugh, who just very recently, like I said, was one of the leading exegetes in, in England. Here's how he would trace it all, and again, how many of the church fathers would trace it. Mary the Virgin was married to Joseph, and she had, of course, Jesus. There is another Mary, and you see her at the end of the Gospels. Remember, there are all these Marys that show up? And people always say, oh, it must be Mary, the mother of our Lord. In many, in many instances, it's not. There's Mary of Clopas, meaning she was married to Clopas. There are other, it says the other Mary. So there's another Mary who is married to someone we don't know. She was probably the sister of Joseph, and she had then James and Joseph, named after his uncle, or Joses, as the Greek says. And then there's Clopas, who's the brother of Joseph, married to another Mary. Do you get the point? Like, Mary's kind of a popular name who had Simon or Simeon, and probably also Jude. But that, the minute I say that's true, someone will look it up and find something else. So, who is James of the Epistle? He is James the Just. He is James the Bishop of Jerusalem, as you see in Acts. But first and foremost, he is James, the son of Mary, the sister-in-law of the Virgin. Okay? So there you have it. Any questions? Pretty much ends it. Okay. Uh, yes, go ahead. Not, not to 
Uh, yeah, yeah, here, yes. Yep. In the ancient world, if a brother dies, if, if, if I have a brother and he's married and his wife dies, chances are I might take her into my home almost to be a wife. Now, here's, what, here's the, only, the only... Yes, that's true, which is why it actually says uh, his family was outside, meaning they may have even lived in the same home. So Mary, the sister-in-law of the virgin may have lost her husband at a young age. They had already had two children, James and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph, Mary the Virgin, Joseph, take them into their home. Which means it's, I mean, if you had kids who you brought into your home from age five up, you might just call them brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean they're biological. That's the point. Okay? Yes? Uh, that's from smarter people than me. That's just tracing kind of lineage and where people grow up and using things like Mary of Clopas. Is re- we know she's related to Joseph in this way, which is part of the reason why at the end of the, uh, end of the Gospel of Luke, who shows up at the road to Emmaus? Cleopas, who may have been Clopas, married to the other Mary, or another son or whatever. We know that they're all related to Jesus in some way, but if they're a direct relation, it's not clear from the text. So hear me very, very clearly. I'm not saying Mary is always a virgin. I think the evidence looks that way. All I'm saying is you can't say for certain that she had other children. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be. Um, oftentimes, that text, though, from John's Gospel is interpreted as uh, John, the beloved disciple, kind of represents all of Christianity because he's faithful until the end. And Mary, of course, is in some respects or another an image of the church. She's a faithful mother. And so this is, Jesus is already setting up, even from the cross, the way in which he's going to care for his baptized children. Mary, Holy Mother of the Church, will have a son, and yet the son needs to care for the church as well. But yeah, that that certainly could be. Yes, all the way in the back. John? Yeah. Yes. Could be. Yeah. Two things. One, let me, let me also say this. A majority of the Christians in the world, if you look at the number of Roman Catholics and the number of Eastern Orthodox, and frankly the number of many 
Lutherans outside the United States, a majority of Christians may not even, this, they wouldn't even balk at this. This is what the church has always taught. So uh, this, this isn't, we can't chalk this up to just a 1950s innovation. But we can say that things went haywire in the mid-20th century. They went haywire at the time of the Reformation. Um, but you notice all of this, even after the Reformation, this is one thing that, at least for Luther, the church had not gotten wrong. The purpose of the Reformation is not to destroy the church, but to bring Christ to the center. And ultimately, to talk about Mary's virginity, contrary to the early church, the early church saw virginity as a higher virtue than being married. I don't. I don't. So contrary to the early church, all I'm trying to say is it puts Jesus at the center, maybe, possibly, question mark, Jesus at the center in an even greater way if he is Mary's only son. Meaning, once you have the Messiah, there's not much else you can do except be faithful to your son, which is why even at the wedding at Cana, you don't see Joseph there. By that point, Joseph, Joseph is probably dead. I mean, the, the church has always said Joseph was... 50, 60 when he married Mary, and probably with no intention of ever having children. So these aren't like two young kids in love, and they say, oh, isn't this great? Let's get married and have kids. Joseph was almost a foster, he was a foster parent. We need someone to help raise this boy Jesus, which is why they then refer to him as the carpenter's son. Yeah, the Catholics go wrong and the Lutherans go wrong. A, a, a very, very nice joy grouper said to me the other day, my, my Catholic buddy says Mary is the mother of God. And I told him, no, she's not. And I thankfully had the confessions open because I was preparing for this. And I said, right here it says, therefore we rightly call Mary the mother of God. And he says, if she's the mother of God, which now I believe, we should give her a little more respect. <laughs> okay? Yeah, the Catholics go wrong, the Lutherans go wrong. But I, but I do take your point. It's a very good point. Virginity is not a higher virtue than marriage, while the, even though the church has always thought that. One more, one more question. Go ahead, Wyatt. I think he means. I think he means the same thing that Luther is saying. He's referencing the fact that he's a very close relative, and probably even grew up in the same home. It's, yeah. Because Adelphoi, the word there is Adelphoi, can mean first siblings, cousins, friends. You and I could be called Adelphoi. Okay? All right. Well, 421, that's your extension. Call if you have any questions. Please talk to us before you report it to anybody else. Um, thankfully, the Eucharist squares everything up. So if I've got this wrong, someday we'll get it right. And if you've got it wrong... Someday you'll get it right. It'll all be okay. All right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.